Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which came out last summer. Um, In addition to writing and podcasting about pregnancy stuff, I also work with a couple of humanitarian organizations that are doing really important work in the world. One of those is CARE. They are a global humanitarian organization. They're 70 years old, and they uh, began with the original care package, sending foods and and personal items to uh, victims of World War II. And now, 70 years later, they work on poverty eradication measures all over the developing world. I am a citizen advocate for CARE, which means I speak with my senators and congressmen about issues that are important to CARE. Um, In fact, I had a couple meetings last week, one with Senator Merkley's staff and one with Congressman Earl Blumenauer's staff, and we talked about several issues that have a direct impact on the lives of women and mothers and girls and children and families um, in some of the most impoverished countries in the world. The U.S. is a really important advocate for these folks, and we have a lot of power in making their lives healthier, more financially stable, and safer. And the ripple effect of that is that, you know, when we make the most vulnerable people in the world safer and stronger, uh, we make ourselves safer and stronger as well. Um, So I'm not going to go into too much more about that, but I mentioned CARE because our guest today is someone whom I met at the National Care Conference in Washington, D.C. last month. I also mention it because I'm really proud of my senators, um, Senator Wyden and Senator Merkley, and my congressman, Blumenauer, um, because they all took part in the sit-in to demand a vote on gun control measures um, in Washington, D.C. this week, and that is the news of the week. I think parents all over the world are afraid of what it means to raise our children in a country where, you know, they go out dancing or they go to school or to church or to the movies or practically anywhere these days. And there's a chance that a nut with a gun could kill their kids. And so far, our representatives have refused to do anything about it. Now, I know that some of you um, are gun owners and reasonable people, and you know how to keep your guns and your kids safe. But assault rifles? People. What are we doing to ourselves? Where's the common sense? Uh Uh-oh, I'm starting in on another rant, aren't I? All right, let's shift gears. Um, Housekeeping detail. We're asking for donations over on my website, genefaulkner.com, to help keep this podcast up and running, free and easy for everybody. My podcast producer, recording time, and all that are pretty spendy. Um, and if, so if you're interested in sponsoring us uh, or having your business included as part of our show, hit me up and let's talk about it. Gene at genefaulkner.com. And for the rest of you, just go, go on over to the donate button and add what you can. Okay. Um, Lindsay, let's answer some email before we get my guest on the line, shall we? Um, I received one the other day that I, I really, I think you guys are going to really appreciate it. Um, Amy wrote, Hi, Jeannie. I subscribe to your podcast and it keeps me company on my long commute. Thanks for all the great common sense pregnancy advice so far. Oh, you're welcome, Amy. 
I am writing in hopes to get your opinion on my doctor's suggestion to schedule a C-section at 37 weeks. From your podcast and articles in Fit Pregnancy, I think I know your position on over-intervening and unnecessary surgery, so that's why I hope you can shed some light on the situation and help me make an informed decision. I am currently 27 weeks along with my third pregnancy. My husband and I have a healthy three-year-old son, but we lost a daughter at 37 weeks. Genetic testing revealed chromosomal translocations, which may have been the cause of the stillbirth, but there's no definite explanation for our loss. All seems well so far with this pregnancy, thank goodness, but my doctors had advised that we go in for delivery at 37 weeks just to be careful and prevent another fetal demise. My previous pregnancy was also unremarkable and the only indication of trouble was that I felt less fetal movement the days leading up to the stillbirth. A non-stress test and ultrasound looked fine and I was reassured that all was well. However, at the next routine appointment, there was no heartbeat and my baby was gone. Oh, I have to believe that it was an act of God and my doctors could not have seen it coming or prevented it but I wonder if they are concerned about legal implications revolving around situations like this, especially if it were to happen again. I trust their medical expertise, but also know there are so many beneficial reasons to keep babies in the womb for 40 weeks. I wanna do the right thing for everyone's health, but most of all, I want this baby to make it safely into the world. Another loss would be truly devastating for our family. Have you ever worked with a similar birth scenario? I greatly appreciate any words of wisdom you can offer. Thanks in advance, and thanks again for a great podcast. Your book is also my new go-to gift for expectant mom friends. It's refreshing to have a real, smart, honest perspective on this whole pregnancy thing. Signed, Expecting a Miracle, Amy. Oh, my Amy. Oh, Amy. Hearts are breaking all over the country right now, as you're describing truly the most painful and frightening scenario, a stillbirth. Now that you know what that feels like, you most certainly don't want to go through anything like that again. I don't blame you. And your doctors don't want to go through it either. You're definitely right that concern about legal implications are a part of their care plan. They have to be. They have to be. Because if they don't strongly recommend all the interventions they have available to them and something were to happen, you'd have grounds for a malpractice suit. That doesn't mean that everything that they recommend is going to guarantee you a healthy outcome. And it doesn't mean that you have to take advantage of all of these interventions. It is possible that a C-section at 37 weeks is the right choice, but it's also possible that it's unnecessary. Your doctor's thinking is that since your daughter died at 37 weeks, that if we get that baby you're currently pregnant with out before then, then they've done something to control a truly tragic situation from happening again. But I guess the question is, is it really necessary? You didn't mention why they want to do surgery rather than induce for a vaginal delivery. You didn't mention if you'd had a C-section before. I'm gonna guess that this pregnancy is normal in every way and that your doctors are suggesting an early surgical delivery 
not because the mode of birth will improve your baby's odds, but because it'll relieve fear. It seems to be that's the diagnosis here, fear. Fear that you could lose another baby. I'd be scared too, but is surgery the right treatment for fear? I'm not sure. Now, y'all know that I don't want to give you medical advice or tell you what you should or shouldn't do. I don't have access to your full medical history or know anything about your life or family dynamic. I am not your doctor. What I want to do is give you all the information I have, plus an inside view of what might be going on, both from your side and your doctor's side of the story. You're afraid of losing another baby. Your doctor is afraid of you losing another baby, plus he's afraid of being sued for malpractice. You're both afraid. I would be too. Is surgery the best option for dealing with fear? My advice would be to tell your doctor that you're not ready to sign up for surgery just yet, that you'd like to take a less fear-based and intervention-oriented approach to prenatal care throughout the rest of your pregnancy, and you want to just see how things go. If this baby continues to be normal and healthy, then wait to make your birth plans until you're closer to your due date. Believe me, Nobody needs to schedule a section 10 weeks in advance. We have the capability of doing them super fast, lickety-split, and at the very last minute. When you're inching closer to 37 weeks, have another big talk with your doctor and tell him what your preferences are. Hear what he has to say too and why he's making the recommendations he's making. Then go with your gut. Go with what makes you feel like you're doing the best thing for yourself and your family. You're right that babies benefit from staying inside until they're darn good and ready to be born at or near 40 weeks, but most 37-weekers do just fine too. So I'm really, I'm not really giving you a do this, not that piece of advice, but I am saying make today's decisions today and tomorrow's decisions tomorrow and use your prenatal visits to address your fears and your doctor's fears and then let him know you don't want to let fear create your birth plan for you. Amy, I'll be thinking about you and your little family over the next few weeks. Be sure and let me know how everything works out. My gut is telling me that everything's going to be just fine. Okay, okay. So I think it's time to talk to today's guest. And I am super excited to have her with us. Uh, Terry McCullough is the director of No Ceilings, the Full Participation Project. That is a Clinton Foundation initiative led by Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. No Ceilings is a Clinton Foundation initiative that brings together partner organizations to evaluate and share the progress girls and women have made in 20 years since the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing and chart the path forward for full participation in political, civil, economic, and cultural life for girls and women in the 21st century. Terry joined the foundation from the Tory Birch Foundation, which works to support women entrepreneurs in the United States through small loans, mentoring, and entrepreneurial education. She previously served as chief of staff, advisor on women's issues, and in a number of other roles in the office of Representative Nancy Pelosi, Democratic leader of the U.S. House of Representatives. Her nonprofit experience includes positions at 
NARAL, Pro-Choice America, Pencil, Public Education Needs Civic Involvement in Learning, and Anna DeVere Smith's Institute on the Arts and Civic Dialogue. She has a bachelor's in politics from the University of California at Santa Cruz and lives in New York City with her husband, daughter, and son. Um, I met Terry at the National Care Conference just last month. Chelsea Clinton was scheduled to be the keynote speaker, but she was super pregnant that week and her doctors wanted her to knock off the nonstop air travel already. So Terry stepped in on her behalf and gave a knockout speech that I found super inspiring. I gave Terry a copy of my book and asked her to give it to Chelsea, who delivered her baby boy last week. I, I have no idea if Chelsea got it or read it, but I like to think that she's used it as her common sense guide to getting through the end of pregnancy. Hey, a girl can dream, right? Anyway, Terry's fascinating, so let's go ahead and get her on the line now. Hi, Terry. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, Jeannie. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for coming on the show with us. You're kind of a busy lady. Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh, good, good. So, Terry, I want to start with you know, letting our listeners know who you are and what you do. And I read your bio in the intro, but I want you to say it in your own words. Who are you and what do you do? Well, thank you. So I am privileged to be the CEO of an initiative called No Ceilings, the Full Participation Project. It is an initiative of the Clinton Foundation. And what we do is we work to advance the rights and opportunities of girls and women globally. We began that process by creating an evidence-based case for the full participation of girls and women. So we spent a good amount of time collecting data on the status of girls and women over the last 20 years over a variety of issues uh, over uh, 190 plus countries. And uh, we've learned a lot from that. And then what we hope to do is take that information and then work to close the gender gap, certainly in the U.S. and across the world, by using that data and information. And that is data you can find on our website, noceilings.org. Cool. So my next question is, what do you do that isn't work-related? But then I have a follow-up question on your bio, which is you're talking about the status of women and girls in the world. How are we doing? (laughs) What a great question that is. So what do I do when I'm not working? I am very fortunate to be the mother of two children, ages 11 and 7, a girl and a boy. I certainly spend as much time with them as I can. Uh Um, I love to uh, read. I love to go see theater. Uh, I love to run and to bike when I can, when the days are as beautiful as they are today in New York City. So you, is your 11-year-old a girl? It's, she is the girl. So you are creeping up on adolescence. You're getting your first little wisps of estrogen in that relationship. (laughs) <laughs> we are calling these the tween years, I suppose, yes, but they are really heading heading straight into adolescence, and I am doing my best to prepare myself in all possible ways, not that one can ever be fully prepared. No, not really, but you know, I think that it all gets such a bad rap. I mean, I, I've raised a bunch of daughters, and yeah, there's definitely some rocky roads in there, but 
Oh man, you look at these girls and you realize what they're just getting into and all you can do is have some compassion. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. You know, on the one hand, our full participation report found that there has never been a better time in history to be a girl. On the other, having spent a lot of time lately with 11-year-old girls, I know it can be extremely complicated and challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you run. You run a little bit or a lot? I do. Are you a big runner? Uh, a little bit trying to make it a lot. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I can do. I, I've recently come out of the closet about being a runner because <laughs> anything, I kind of think that what I do is more slogging, but I can now run 3.8 miles and I'm, it's taken me forever to get there. <laughs> so I definitely call myself one of the slowest runners I've ever seen. Back and of the pack. I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> definitely back of the pack, but I keep moving. And I am uh, registered to run the New York City Marathon this fall. No way! Uh, for the first time in 13 years. So I'm really, I'm going to see whether, whether I still have it. Okay, well, then you're definitely not a slugger. You're a runner. There's no way I'll do it. There's no way I'll do we'll it. We'll see. We'll, I'll talk to you in, on November 8th, and we'll see whether that actually happened. Okay. Are you running for a charity? Um, you know, I am uh, not yet currently, but I am uh, uh, very supportive of all the fantastic programs. And you know, we have in common, we're, we're, we're great supporters of uh, Every Mother Counts, uh -huh. fantastic maternal health organization. Um, and they certainly do a great job of, of getting a lot of people out there to run. I know, uh, and I think they've got a couple races. slots left open. So, Oh, that's good to know. I might, yeah. have, to, I might have to hit them up. Yeah, yeah, you should. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. Well, that's a that's a pretty full life you've got there, Terry. I am really, I'm really, um, I loved reading your bio and looking at kind of what you've been doing in your professional life. And it's sort of like a feminist manifesto for how to support women. I love it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank you. I have had the great fortune to have worked for a number of really powerful, creative, interesting, successful women, which I think is unfortunately still somewhat rare. The, the vast majority of my resume, in fact, if not all, is, is working for some fantastic women, and I have learned so much from them and admire all of them greatly. But it's not just being fortunate. I mean, y y you've got to be, they've got to be hiring you because you do the job really, really well. Well, thank you. You're kind to say. I I work very hard. I've always worked very hard. Um, I believe in uh, doing the best that you can every day mm -hmm. uh, to move the ball forward to make change. It's it's really important to me. And I, ever since I remember, I have wanted to. Uh, uh, invest my professional life in trying to make a change, uh, particularly for girls and women. So in that, I've been able to do what I love for much, if not most, of my career. Well, then you are lucky. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Um, also in your bio, I just we have to give a shout out to Santa Cruz. You went to school there, right? <laughs> <laughs> the fighting banana slugs, of course. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm actually from Southern California, 
moved to Portland about 20-something years ago. But, you know, I'm a California girl. It's so, a, it's same, the, the West Coast, East Coast differences are, are true. You know, I, I was born and raised in California, uh, never anticipated that I would live anywhere else because why would you? And right. then, <laughs> after I moved to the East Coast was for the next several years – uh, 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 constantly met with that question, why would you move from California? It's an amazing place to be. It's an amazing place to grow up, to to engage in conversation, in activism, in, um, uh, in community in a lot of different ways. So yeah. I, that all, you know, all of these experiences make you who you are. So I'm very lucky to have had my experiences in San Francisco and Santa Cruz. And yeah, yeah. Now on the East Coast. Is that where you're from? Is San Francisco the Bay Area? Uh, you both, yeah, I grew up in both uh, San Francisco and in uh, uh, Marin County in the Bay Area. All right, yeah. My daughter recently moved. Well, it's been a couple of years now from Portland to New York, and she lives. You know where all the kids do. She's in Brooklyn, and works in <laughs> Manhattan. And um, boy, she took to it like a fish, and water. It was just a natural click. It's great to see. You know, an extraordinary thing about New York City is that each day you wake up and the possibilities could be endless. Yeah. There is so much to do to see and explore here. It's there's such a level of vitality. Yeah, yeah. I get to come out your way. And I go to D.C. quite a bit, too. So, you know, several, many times a year, and I've never once been bored. I've been tired, but not bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so stimulating. So let's talk about your work. Let's talk about No Ceilings, the full partition. Par, that's a mouthful, isn't it? The it's full, a mouthful, isn't it? No Ceilings, the it's full a, participation know, project. And I should say, look, you know, we want to talk about it's, it is, it's a long title for an initiative, but, but one of the, we're trying to make several things clear. We're trying to create a world in which girls and women have the, have the same rights and opportunities as men to eliminate those ceilings and also to be able to for fully participate in every aspect of society. Um, that's, that's equity. That's fair and that's just and that's what we're working toward. Yeah. I've had guests on before and, you know, we talk about, I mean, there's just so many issues that go into why women's lives are full, they're meeting their full potential, you know, they're, they're thriving, and why some women are not. And it's never an easy thing. You don't you just flip the switch and fix things. There's so many factors. Education, health status, sanitation, housing, safety, all of that. So let's talk about the initiative a little bit about how No Ceilings fits. Where, where are you in that story? So that's a great question. So one of the things we hope to do by collecting this data and then share it on our website in, in various data visualizations and in videos and other pieces, both globally and then with some country-by-country country data, is that we hope to attract a broad audience and create increased public awareness around where we are, what, what we have achieved, what progress we have made in terms of gender equality, and how much further we have to go. So it's a great starting point for education, for awareness, for getting people who perhaps had not become engaged with these issues to start to care about one or 
seven or 12 of these issues related to gender equality. And as you noted, there are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot, but they all are very, uh, very important. So what we really hope is that uh, advocates can use this uh, data as a tool, but also those who have not necessarily come to this conversation can educate themselves. And we hope at some point use this data uh, as a tool. We, we uh, found some interesting information when we released the report. One of the, one of the pieces of information that, you know, it's not surprising, but was disappointing to us when we first uh, shared this and when we started collecting the data was that there is such a dearth of gender disaggregated data. So we have as much as we could possibly collect over this span of time that is uh, 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 rigorous and tested data, but there are so many countries that just don't have that data disaggregated by gender and don't necessarily have plans to to do it. So now, is so that one of the important? Is that because they don't have the resources? They don't have the technological resources, or they don't think it's important, or? There's all sim- of those, yeah. all of those things. There, and I, I think, and there aren't enough people so we, capable of collecting the data. Absolutely, all of those things. So, so one of the key findings for us is to work to increase public awareness around the need to collect the data, and then work to find to help find the right resources um, uh, to bring to bear to to start to collect the data. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of the findings. We were, we were happy to report some progress over time, and, and one of the uh, uh, areas in which we were happy to report progress was that over the last 20 years, women have been living uh, longer and healthier lives than ever before. And over the last uh, 20 years, maternal mortality, women's, women's death uh, 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 as a result of, of pregnancy-related causes worldwide dropped by almost half, which is a great victory, but still that means there are so many women, almost 800 women who die every day from largely preventable causes. Right. I know. It's ridiculous. Um, one woman and every an, two no, minutes. It, it's, it's outrageous. Another area in which we found progress relates in some way to that. It's that we've almost closed the gender gap in access to primary education for girls. And when you think about it and you look at the importance of education, you know the more education a girl has, the longer she puts off childbearing. Right. Uh, so that's another important area of progress we have made, yet when you look at the whole story, we still have a long way to go in terms of girls' uh, achievement in secondary and access to secondary education. Right. You know, when we look at girls graduating from high school, if they're not college-bound, we worry about them. Absolutely. And then globally, even girls uh, being able to continue their education without uh, being subject to child marriage or to being put to work by their family or for whatever uh, reason that they are no longer able to access school, whether the travel is too far or whether uh, so many, so many different reasons. Right, right. And in so many places, it's just not an expectation. You you did primary school there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The culture does not support uh, uh, girls succeeding equal to boys in education. And, not yet. And there is another area we need to change. 
You know, that's something that I've wondered about is, you know, I know that in our own classrooms, and you're seeing it probably in your children's classrooms, when they're, I mean, our, all of our schools are more or less equitable in terms of gender. But when you see kids in the classroom who are just, they are the students. You know who they are in the classroom. They're the ones who are really driven. They're excellent students. It kind of, it's an exciting thing for all parents. And I wonder, is that happening in schools where girls don't have equity? Are those parents seeing that, oh my God, this is, this is happening for girls too, and they get enthusiastic? I think there is some of that. I, I think there certainly is a great level of engagement um, uh, when parents are able to see uh, what can be achieved. But that does take a lot of work directly with parents and with the community first mm-hmm. to ensure that they understand what the outcomes can be. Right. And if, you know, to, to your point, too, look, we, we are uh, uh, very fortunate here in the U.S. that, you know, girls – uh, on average, uh, among uh, 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 seniors in high school, earn higher grades than boys. Women have earned 57% of bachelor's degrees in the U.S., but even here, too, we don't see that translate into particular jobs, say STEM jobs or other opportunities for them in as meaningful a way as they are um, uh, succeeding in education. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. I think that one of one of the uh, points we we hope to make with this data is that I think that there there can be an assumption here in the U.S. that all the problems uh, rest in global geographies in terms of gender equality. But one of the things we show clearly uh, at NoSeelings.org is that the U.S. still has a long way to go in a number of areas, especially when we look at. Uh, uh, the U.S. being only one of uh, uh, nine countries to uh, that does not provide paid parental leave I know. Uh, for employees. <laughs> oh, my God. That is the topic that I get so much email about. I can't tell you how many really? anguished emails I get from women saying, you know, my baby is... 10 weeks old, I've taken all the time I can get. I can't afford anything else, but I can't go back. I don't know what to do. And, you know, I certainly don't have the answer for them, but I'm sympathetic. It's agony. Well, and it, it's, it's really just unfortunate that, gosh, you know, more than 60 years ago in the U.S., women entered the workforce in a meaningful way, yet we never created an infrastructure that would uh, relieve parents of that level of stress and anxiety, whether it be through leave, whether it be through childcare, um, to ensure that uh, in a situation where both parents or a single parent um, could be at work and know um, uh, uh, that their child is taken care of. Yeah, yeah. So what else can you tell us about the work that No Ceilings is doing? Because you guys are doing a lot of different things. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. We are. So we're, we're a very uh, young initiative. We're only a couple of years old. And, mm-hmm. and as I said, our first phase was to, to really share this data. And we continue to share the data and continue to have that conversation around all of these issues around health, around education, economic participation, the environment, women in leadership. So we really 
can keep uh, uh, these issues alive in a variety of different ways so people can really think about how they want to engage um, uh, to make change. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very exciting for us to do that. You know, we, we at the Clinton Foundation have great convening skills and power. So uh, we have been able to draw partners together, whether it's for a convening or a conversation, or creating collaboratives to make change. For example, a couple of years ago, we created a collaborative with, a, with an awkward acronym. We call it CHARGE, and it stands for uh, Collaborative Harnessing Ambition and Resources uh, for Girls' Education. We have, exactly, (laughs) that's why we just call it CHARD. Uh We we have 50 partners. We partner with the Brookings Institution and uh, uh, who are among uh, 50 partners uh, who have pledged to work uh, to ensure that 14 million girls can enter and succeed in uh, secondary education. Uh, over five years, uh, the majority of them located in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a great group that includes private sector partners, government partners, um, NGOs, nonprofit organizations. Um, so one of the ways that we really enjoy working is figuring out the right and sometimes unusual partnerships to get together to figure out what the needs are uh, to make change. So what kind of needs are they meeting? Is it everything from brick and mortar to school supplies and uniforms? Exactly. It's, ah. it's about the quality of education. It's about safety uh, uh, entering education. Um, it's about opportunity and about how we be, how we support um, uh, these girls and ensure that they have voice and agency. Mm-hmm. So uh, lots of different opportunities to uh, support them in a variety of different ways, which is, is really exciting and is um, uh, really complementary to so many great efforts like the First Ladies Let, Gr- Let Girls Learn initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, we all work together very well to ensure that we meet the needs of uh, uh, girls' education. So you and I are really familiar with how issues like education and access to schools and those kinds of things impact maternal health. And you referenced it a little bit um, earlier when you talked about girls, the farther they go in school, the less chance that they'll drop out for child marriage and have children too soon. But I wonder if you can talk about it from, you know, your perspective about how these issues impact both maternal health, but also a woman's experience as a mother? That's such a great question. And I I think about that a lot because, you know, I, I love being a mother. Um, Mm -hmm. I am sure you do too, Mm -hmm. but my Mm -hmm. life did not begin when I gave birth and my life did not end when I gave birth. Um, This is part of an experience um, we have as women uh, that is extraordinary, but we are women who are an actor in this experience. When you are concerned about health during a pregnancy, you need to be concerned both about the health of the baby and the health 
of the mother. You need to ensure that there is opportunity for a mother to get good care. You need to ensure that uh, uh, supports that can be so simple, like transportation to a hospital that is miles away Mm -hmm. is available and makes a difference to ensure that women have access to regular screenings. And, you know, maternal health, one of the fallacies, I think, is that this is um, uh, an issue only in um, uh, uh, certain countries globally. Mm -hmm. And you noted, you know, there's so many elements that can impact uh, your health and the treatment you get. Mm-hmm. Race, ethnicity, socioeconomic circumstance, geography, disability, mm-hmm. sexual orientation. You know, uh, one of the things that I think it's very important, important for people to recognize and they are always very surprised by is that we have a, a maternal mortality challenge here in the U.S. Oh, baby, Race don't in we the ever. US, I, you know, Jeannie, you know this better than, than all, but, but Rates of maternal mortality in the U.S. have actually worsened since 1995. I know, which is just just outrageous given the uh, uh, resources that we have in this country, and no woman should be denied those resources based solely on her geography. I know, yeah. And for listeners who aren't as, if you haven't listened to all of my other rants about maternal mortality in the U.S. The facts are that African-American women are four to five times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes, and Latina women are twice as likely um, as Caucasian women. And that is an atrocity. Absolutely. You know, what's, what's really a, a, a contrast that people don't often understand is that all of these maternal health problems we don't need any miracles. We don't need any new technologies. We don't need any new cures, treatments. We know how to solve the problems, even here in the United States. We know what we need to do, and they're simple, straightforward solutions. Um, but in whether it's a problem in Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or Detroit or the Deep South or California, it's cultural issues. It's deep-seated socioeconomic issues. It's um, so many different inequities impact a woman's experience, not only as she gives birth, but then as a mom. You know, I, I think it's hard to raise children. I think it's hard. It's a hard thing to do, especially when you're working. But I know I can pay my mortgage this month. I know that we have enough food. That's not the way it is for moms around the world. That's absolutely true. And as you noted, the, there, there are a series of, of complicated challenges. But as you also said, look, we know what the proper interventions are. And right. in some cases, it is, it is simply lack of resources for those interventions. Right. So how do we ensure that we are directing the right resources to the right place? Because he, as you said, there are many issues that are much more complicated. Here we know where the, what the interventions are. We know how to make change. We just need the resources and the opportunity to make change. Right, right. So um, back to talking about data and studies and why those kinds of things are important, um, especially in maternal health and, and when we're looking at prenatal and antenatal care, we often 
we often look at it in terms of how it'll affect the baby, not really how it'll affect mom. You know, mothers are told to take their prenatal vitamins and get enough exercise and eat the right foods and drink clean water because you want to have a healthy baby. They don't really say, well, all those things are important for a healthy woman too. And it's, um, I was talking to a, uh, uh, teacher in from New York who conducted a huge systemic review. She looked at 70,000 academic articles between 92 and 2012. Medical journals, science journals, social science journals, they looked at the whole enchilada and found that only between 1 and 3% of all of the articles had anything to do with the maternal experience. And of that 1 to 3%, more than half looked only at the child outcomes. And I mean, that we're not looking at mom's experience. We're not talking about moms. We're not studying moms. We're not looking at women as sole independent creatures who, you know, we're looking at her as the baby mama. And so that's my little rant, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you're right. Uh, I, we, we, what, motherhood is an extraordinarily important job, um, but we don't hear that fathers are described only as fathers and are treated only as fathers. If you are a single woman and the sole breadwinner in your family, you have a lot of other jobs. If you, uh, we as women can be mothers, certainly, but we can be a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really important for us to be uh, uh, our own advocates when we can, but then to recognize that for the women who are going through pregnancy or, or childbirth, to be their advocates as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, engaging men and fathers in this conversation as well is, is really important. Um, you know, and I just, Jeannie, I would be really... Uh, remiss if I, I didn't include, which I don't think I mentioned earlier, um, because it is really important how access to family planning is the really critical element of maternal health oh, and I reducing know. maternal mortality. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we live in a world where there have been a lot of advances in contraception now, but again, in many areas, the, the resources are not there. Right, right. Any obstetrician will tell you that the safest pregnancy you can have is the one you don't have. And I think the statistic is something like 225, is it 225 million women around the world don't have access to contraception who want it? Uh, You know, that is one piece of data I do not have, but um, I think more... More than 220 million is yeah. the uh, statistic that I have. A whole lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of women. In, in part due to lack of access. Yeah. yeah. Or, or because of cultural issues. Lack of access or they live in a community or a culture where it's not allowed. Or they can't afford it. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit about um, paid family maternity leave. Um, and... I could not be happier that that subject is coming up in the election. Um, Thank you to the Clintons. I appreciate that more than you know. Um, 
it's a long overdue conversation. And I, I wonder where you think we're going to be headed. And, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you worked it out. <laughs> so I will just say that, so as uh, part of an NGO, I have nothing to do with um, the election, but I will say that it's, it's a moment where you will see um, every few days another private sector company announcing a new plan around paid parental leave. Yeah. There's a real understanding now that uh, both employees and consumers really uh, – uh, have a need and demand uh, uh, to to really work out how to be the best possible employee. Um, I uh, was very fortunate um, to be able to access paid leave when I worked on Capitol Hill for Leader Nancy Pelosi. It was always a priority for her, mm-hmm. both legislatively and uh, to support her staff. But my husband both times also took parental leave. And it's really important that when we have this conversation now, there is a real understanding that this is a family responsibility, not just the mother or the woman's responsibility. I worry about the women who are not working for corporations that can offer that to them. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the part-time employees, the waitresses, the factory workers, the you know, small bookstore owners, I'm, the wide swath of women in our society who there just isn't any resource through their employer for them to have that time off as paid. And I guess what I'm wondering is, are you optimistic that the conversations that we're having nationally now are going to, I mean, are we going to see it happen for women who... It's great that corporations step up, but what about the rest of women? Are we going to see change that's for a, them? That's a great point, and it's a small step. You're yeah. absolutely right, but it is not a solution. But I, I think that if we need change, we have to engage in the, prog- pro- in the process, not just for ourselves, or, but, other, or, but for others who, who struggle even to, to uh, have uh, uh, access to paid sick days, let alone paid parental leave. Um, Everyone should engage in the process. Everyone should uh, uh, relay to their member of Congress that this is a priority for them. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that you were really supportive in that area when you were working for um, Nancy Pelosi. And I think that it's kind of representative of so often when you work for women, women get it. They've had their own children. They know what it feels like to have to go back to work too early or to feel like they have to go back and they're, they're not secure about their daycare situation. Or, you know, I mean, there's just so many creative ways to, to do it. But it's one of the unifying things of women. They know what well, that I, first day I back think- feels like. You know what, that's that's a great point. They certainly know what it feels like, but they also never doubt for a second that you um, can still contribute in a meaningful way, um, and having a child does not change that, and uh, uh, by and large can offer you and will offer you uh, the supports that you need to ensure that you can continue uh, uh, 
after leave to engage fully in your work. Yeah, yeah. I um, there's a an author and speaker, uh, Jessica Shortall, who wrote this really great book um, called Work Pump Repeat, and it's about breastfeeding moms returning to work and um, how to make that happen. And she's a huge advocate for paid maternity maternity leave. And her statistics and stories are, oh, they're just so heart-touching and heartbreaking about what women have to do to get by, especially right after they have their babies. And she also talks a lot about, <clears throat> excuse me for that, the impact of the, the anxiety that we all, I mean, even if we have paid maternity leave and we know we have the best nanny in town, we all feel that anxiety when we go back to work. And I think in some level, it probably continues throughout our working motherhood. Um, but it, it looks like it's contributing to postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, a general sense of dissatisfaction with motherhood in the United States. What do you think? I, I just constantly feel fortunate that I'm somebody who has choices and, and resources so that I can make decisions about um, uh, spending time with my children and, and quality of care. There are so many women in the U.S., who don't have that opportunity, and I think a lot about um, the the choices that they have to make every day mm-hmm. that I, I am sure uh, make them beyond anxious. Yeah. We 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 really just do not uh, uh, support working women um, uh, in a in a helpful way in, in in that way, and I certainly hope that that will change. Well, I think it has to do with gender inequity in our own country. You know, we we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go before... We do, but there yeah. is opportunity to make change. I think that, that we all need to be doing that together. I yeah. think that we all need to share our experiences, both good and bad. I think that we need to make clear that we have a place at the table to discuss these issues and how they impact our work, our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's how we make change. We need to to engage uh, those who make the decisions about this, whether it is somebody who runs a company, whether it's somebody who is a legislator who can make change that way. How do you think that we amplify and multiply that change? You know, the more the more of us that use our voices, the more uh, uh, these issues continue to come up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I, I I am thrilled as you are to to read a different article of what seems like every day about um, this uh, issue of of paid parental leave, the need, the challenges that families go through. We are we are creating a continued awareness that we hope will really create some change, but that drumbeat is necessary to make the change. It's necessary to uh, convince those that aren't uh, perhaps swayed. It's necessary to make the case to those in charge that there is an economic benefit to invest in women um, at this level or any other. Yeah, we're 48% of the workforce. That's no small well, and we, pittance. One of, one of, 
one of the uh, uh, areas in which we unfortunately did not have progress to report in our uh, uh, no ceilings report was that you know women's labor force participation has remained static over the last 20 years. We have a lot of work we need to do so that women can fully participate economically, uh, whether it's closing the the wage gap, whether it's supporting access to capital for women entrepreneurs. Uh, so many, so much work to do. Certainly, certainly, paid leave, paid sick leave, are critical components of that. I think that we're going to amplify and multiply change when more women are in leadership positions. More women like yourself who are, you know, spearheading important initiatives. More women in positions of governmental leadership. I really think that when we get those numbers higher women aren't going to let other women suffer because our priorities will finally be represented. Well, it's a great, great point and one that needs to be uh, emphasized frequently. Yeah. Look, we, we can't have a conversation about inclusion and diversity of a population when you don't have representation of that population with a voice and a seat at the table. It's just not possible. Right. Uh, it was it was really astounding to see uh, Nancy Pelosi become the first woman speaker of the House of Representatives in history. But one thing she did immediately that made really um, reverberating change was that she appointed a number of women to chair positions as chairs of various committees mm-hmm. to ensure that there would be a diversity of conversation, of priority, of interest uh, at the table. Uh, it's it's just so important, and uh, I'm hopeful that more more women will answer the answer the leadership call. Yeah, I am too. I am too. I think it's going to be a fascinating 25 years ahead of us, and I think that you know I have daughters ranging from 16 to early 30s, and wow, each one of them. I also have a son who is the strongest feminist I know. Um, but each one of them, there was a period of time in their adolescence and teen years where they thought that feminism was kind of irrelevant to their life. They grew up with a working mom. They looked around at all the women that they knew and they were all, you know, working women. But then there came a point where they were entering the workforce or they were looking at how male students in college were treated differently than female students or they looked at there was something that changed their minds and they realized that oh yeah this is not a dead topic and I think that we're seeing a lot more young women you know if they don't get it during their college and early career years they certainly get it when they are raising their children and all of a sudden they they get it they really get it that we we haven't had our needs represented or met yet so I'm I'm really I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. As as you should be and we should be because there is there is opportunity ahead for us but we need to ensure we've got that seat at the table where, wherever it is. So certainly I hear what you're saying, you know, when we first released our report, we released it with a social media campaign we called Not There, and we worked with some great partners like the Condé Nast magazines um, 
to create a uh, social media moment and a, uh, a physical moment where we removed images of women from various magazines and billboards and such to to just give people a sense that we're not there yet on gender equality and why it matters. You may see one or two women at the highest levels, but we have not uh, we've not achieved equity in that space. And until we really have a uh, uh, a critical mass in in a variety of sectors participating at at their highest levels, you know, we're we're just not going to see what that equality looks like, and we can get there. I know. And, it, and I think it's somewhere between 18 and 20 percent on all leadership, all levels of leadership, both, you know, city, state and country are seated by women. Is that more or less accurate still? Yeah, that's just about it. Yeah. Yeah. 18 to 20 <laughs> percent. OK, we've got work to do. <laughs> <laughs> we do. And we're ready to do the work and we hope others will be ready as well. So you and I met real briefly at CARES National Conference. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about how women step up for other women, especially during pregnancy and early motherhood, because I think it's crucial. Um, so at the conference, Chelsea Clinton was scheduled to be the keynote speaker, but she was super pregnant and couldn't travel at that time. Um, and so you stepped in on her behalf. And now you and I are speaking. She just had her son. And... I would imagine that there's huge disruption in her professional life and that the women at the Clinton Foundation and at your initiative are going to step up and fill the gap. And that just opens up so many different conversations that I think we need to be just talking about all the time so that we can figure out how to solve the problems. Questions like how women manage work, pregnancy, and motherhood. How women step in for each other when the going gets tough how the workforce is changing. Just tell me what you think about all of that and how it works with you guys. Well, Jeannie, I mean, you know that we, uh, as, as mothers, we find a way to make it work. And I distinctly remember when I for, had my, my daughter and I was a mother for the first time, how it really clarified my priorities in a lot of ways. I couldn't just hang out at the office till 11 o'clock at night. Not that everybody should be doing that anyway. But I have but very you East Coasters do that. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely a West Coast, East Coast difference uh-huh. for certain. But I, but I had no other option. I had to figure out how to fit all that I needed to do in the period of time before I had to go pick up my daughter at childcare. So I figured out how to make it work. I figured out how to delegate better. I figured out how to prioritize better. I think that it really uh, uh, it, it changed the way I thought about how to be productive. And you're right, there is also a, a collaboration uh, uh, among women as a matter of course. Certainly the opportunity to work together to ensure that the work gets done together is one we know very well here at the Clinton Foundation and one I'm sure you have known throughout your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, women step up. It's just that we don't always let everybody know that the women in your life will probably be there for you. Yeah, so you and I have been on the phone for a good long time now. Is there anything else that you want to talk about today that we haven't covered? Oh, Jeannie, thank you so much for having me. I would just, 
I just want to say that I'm I'm very optimistic and I'm excited. I I get to do this work that I love every day in the hopes that we can uh, ensure that girls and women can fully participate, that my daughter, who believes she can do absolutely anything, will get to see that become a reality. And I, I think that uh, I'm thrilled to be able to do that work. I'm thrilled that you do that work as well. But we need we need a lot more engagement in this work from a lot of different people, mothers, fathers, people who are not parents, um, everyone in, in every particular uh, uh, aspect of being. We we really need uh, a concentrated effort um, so that uh, uh, we can all achieve the uh, beauty of our dreams, as Eleanor Roosevelt said. Oh, I love that. I love that woman. Eleanor Roosevelt can do no wrong in my mind. And I think that, you know, what what people can do right now in terms of stepping up is using their voice and their vote, baby. Get out there and do that thing. We are citizens with rights and, you know, that's our a most powerful tool. It's it's profound. I think, you know, we we yeah, we certainly need to be educated and engaged. Um, yeah. And yeah. we hope that if, if folks are interested in this, they can go to noceilings.org and get a little more educated on some of these issues of gender equality. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, are you ready for your last question of the podcast? I am. Okay, this is where you get to be as simple or profound as you choose. The question is, where are you in your life as a mom? I am in the circus. <laughs> as my in my life as a mom i enjoy every aspect of it there are at least three rings with a lot going on all the time um, but i'm thrilled to be there and i can't wait to see what the next act is <laughs> i've seen those uh, memes on facebook and other places where they say not my circus not my monkeys <laughs> But so often with motherhood, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's my circus and monkeys. I love the monkeys. The, mon- the monkeys make life fun. <laughs> yeah, we've got flying monkeys sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Terry, this has been great, and I really, really appreciate your coming on and talking to us. We'll Jeannie, talk- thank you so much for having me. We will talk again soon. Thank you. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Today's guest was Terry McCullough, director of No Ceilings, the Full Participation Project. You can learn more about her work at noceilings.org. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Pick up a copy of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, anywhere books are sold, and keep sending me your emails at jean at jeanfaulkner.com. This podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. Thanks to all of you who are donating to keep this podcast free and easy for everyone to access. And let's keep this conversation going. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this. Mama said, Mama said.